Welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres, and I am here with Sarah Robertson. Hey, Dan. Who do we have on the show today? Uh, we have Todd Gazda from the Collaborative for Educational Services. Right on your shirt, actually. There it is. There right it there. Is, right yep. there. It was covered up. All right. Based right here in Northampton. Based in Northampton. And we want to talk about schools because in about two weeks... Schools will be open, or maybe a week, here in Massachusetts. We want to talk about the state of public education in Massachusetts, the exciting investments that are being made, but also the real challenges that I think a lot of schools are facing. I want Todd to tell us today what's happening with public education in Massachusetts. What's the biggest challenge schools are facing here in Western Massachusetts as they begin the new year? Bar none staffing. There are a lot of challenges facing public education, Massachusetts and across the United States. But I think the biggest challenge facing us right now is staffing, finding teachers to fill the open positions, not just teachers, but support staff. That's what I was going to ask you. You said staffing, and I think of teachers immediately. But talk a little bit about the support staff. Who are they? What do they do? Uh, you know, I sometimes hear terms like paraeducator, um, you know, special education teacher, and, and I get confused with all that support staff. Can, can you lay out, out that support? It takes a lot for a school to run. It takes a lot to support the learning that happens in the classroom. It takes the administrative support uh, from principals, superintendents. Uh, it also takes admin support from uh, executive assistants and clerical staff. But it also takes paraprofessionals who are a critical part of the uh, learning environment within a classroom to support the students uh, in small groups one-on-one, -on -one, working to support the teaching that happens in that classroom. But then it's also cafeteria workers. Uh, we need to make sure that the students have healthy lunches. Mm. The environment within a school is critical. The physical environment is critical to the learning environment. If a school isn't clean, well-maintained, that infects the culture, the morale, uh, and just the perception of students walking into a school. Custodians are critical and maintenance staff to maintaining the buildings. Transportation, bus drivers, I mean, that's one of those issues that's been, it was tough before the pandemic, and it just got really exacerbated by the pandemic. Now, when I hear all of that, does is, is that come down to money? Is it that we can't pay enough to keep them in the jobs, or is it just we don't have enough people? What, what are the challenges that school administrators are telling you about you know, keeping staff? That's one of that's that's one of those you know onions you got to kind of really peel apart. To some extent, money plays a part. We pay better in Massachusetts than many parts of the country, and yet these like looking at teachers. These are individuals who are highly professional, have to have a master's degree, and yet they're not you know the compensation. Uh, doesn't often follow that, and it's really different from community to community. Yeah. So that's challenging. Uh, some of the other pay has been increasing, particularly in Massachusetts, as they have increased the minimum wage. That has pushed wages up for some of our hourly positions, like clerical or paraprofessionals or bus drivers. But when you come down to really high-stress areas, it's tough. We can't find enough paraprofessionals in the classroom. We can't definitely can't find enough bus drivers. I just read an article recently where Framingham Public Schools actually had to cut back on transportation and who they were going to provide 
provide to the state to write to the state, you know, minimum requirement, mm. saying that you know, eight through twelve, or uh, I believe, was not going to be transported, and that parents eighth to twelfth grade. Correct, in that wow. if you lived uh, under two miles from a school, which is the state requirement, two miles is the cutoff where you have to provide transportation uh, K through se- uh, for grades K through seven. Uh, they didn't have to. So it was, wow. you know, it, it gets hard. And those are difficult decisions because transportation is also an equity issue. I'm so glad you bring that up because I, I've heard here on WHNP a lot of conversation about rural schools not having transportation needs met. I think about that in a rural setting where homes can be you know, far away from the schools, and that's going to add to the cost. Like you said, there's a state law that requires that. Can you talk a little bit about those challenges specifically to rural school transportation? What's happening? It is hard. And I'm a rural school kid. I, you know, I rode the bus. I was 12 miles from school growing up in Middlefield, Mass. And you know, it was a good half hour, 45 minutes most days to get down to school with all the stops. But as it becomes tighter, school districts, if they can't find drivers, have to consolidate runs, which means you have less runs, which the runs are longer. And so you have kids who are on the bus, you know, an hour or even more in some instances to get them to school. That means early pickup times. That creates challenges at bus stops, Mm. particularly during the winter with snow and the fact that it's dark when a lot of our our kids are out there waiting for the buses. So all of this is kind of wrapped up into a really big challenge that gets exacerbated by the geographics of rural school districts. And at the same time, rural schools are seeing a decline in enrollment. So you have like maybe fewer families paying taxes to the town to support the schools, fewer bus drivers. And like, how can these kids who are so far out here in Heath and Colerain and Middlefield, like how, how do we combat this with the declining school enrollment problem? It is. It's it's hard. There's very little industry in some, you know, our hill towns, and that means that support for the schools comes from property taxes. And if there's no commercial base for that, it has to come from the residential. It's always a balancing act. Are they cutting back on limited town services to a large extent? The town services are limited to a large extent, anyways. But are you going to cut back further on those? But you have to maintain roads. You have to plow the roads, and so it does increase property taxes in a lot of these rural communities. And that's a real strain to some of our, you know, lower income families. Todd, is is the solution to that regionalization of rural schools? I mean, would that would that help to solve it? Because I think of regionalization as okay, you're gonna have more students in the school, but you're just going to also increase transportation costs. Yeah, it sounds as like longer bus research. rides to me. Right, it does. And that's, you know, a lot of, sometimes uh, when you look at re- regionalization, you have to balance that. You know, what is the maximum distance you can have a kid on a bus to get to school? And then, you know, do you regionalize central office services but maintain maybe two high schools or mm-hmm. two middle schools and look to build capacity that way? It gets really challenging, but it also gets challenging in that particularly in our rural communities, the schools are really the heart of those communities. And so it is an important focal point, not only for education, but community events. And a lot of the life of that town circle, you know, kind of centers around the schools that are in those towns. So if you talk about, you know, consolidating schools or closing schools, these are really emotional topics for communities. Well, and, and we're here to, we're talking about the challenge, the funding challenges for rural schools mm. in the state government actually just put more funding to address these problems specifically. Um, if you want to tell us a little bit about um, 
how the state budget recently. Do you know what that dollar amount was? Large, Large. very. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't remember the I exact say number. I want fifteen million, but we are going to fact check. Oh that. no, no, no! That's a no. lot. Uh, the Student Opportunity Act gave uh, you know billions of dollars over a number of years uh, to to kind of kind of close those gaps in funding to kind of break down the barriers from the haves and the have-nots. But when you look at the distribution of those funds, they largely went to, I believe it was about 35 communities across the state. And we're talking the lion's share of these funds up or up to like almost, you know, I believe it was some, something close to like three quarters of them went to like our larger urban centers. Now, Public educators advocated Student Opportunity Act knowing that was going to happen because it had to happen to close those opportunity gaps for students in those urban communities and kind of break down, you know, the systemic problems of underfunding for years and years and years. There needed to be a huge influx of money. But to some extent, the school districts in the middle that kind of got left out, affluent communities, you know, they can afford to pay and support their schools. The, the urbans got a big influction of money from Student Opportunity Act, as well as federal funds from the federal government due to the pandemic. And all districts really got some of that money, which helped. But with specifically the Student Opportunity Act, a lot of districts didn't get a lot of money out of the Student Opportunity Act. And many of those districts are here in Western Mass. Might be under the Student Opportunity Act, but the $7.5 million that was in this year's state budget for rural schools specifically. I know that Natalie Blay was kind of like championing that amount, but... And that's huge. And I I just want to give a shout out to our legislators out here in Western Mass. They are very vocal at the State House in expressing the needs of particularly schools out here in communities in Western Mass. You know, they're, they're punching above their weight in the impact that they can have. Uh, and seven, you know, 7.5 million is a good start. But once you kind of bred that, because rural schools isn't just Western Mass. There's rural schools down the Cape. There's rural school districts across the state of Massachusetts. So you're looking at spreading $7.5 million out. You know, it, it reduces the impact that those funds can have. And so, but it's critical to get, you know, kind of get the ball rolling, get started with $7.5 million. Hopefully the next budget cycle, we can increase it a little bit and slowly begin to kind of make that financial yeah. difference. Yeah, the Rural Schools Commission on which Representative Blaze sits said that we need $60 million. Yeah. So there's the wish list and <laughs> then but there's what we need. When you talk about the Student Opportunity Act, is that the additional funding that's coming from the tax that voters approved in no. last year? Because no. they were just a, no. voters in Massachusetts tax. approved an additional tax on... The millionaire's tax. Millionaire's that tax. Through. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. And it's additional billion dollars that I get will be split between education and transportation. So I'm wondering, you know, how will those funds help the situation that you're discussing? The devil's in the details. It yeah. really is because transportation and, and education are big catch-alls. Right. Um, you know, education can be higher education, which has needs as well, just as K-12 does. Right. If I may add, yes. one education level that doesn't get enough attention is early childhood education. And you know, from everything I've read about it, it seems to be an area that's neglected, and yet it shows the most amount of promise if you want students learning later on in life. Well, and it just makes sense. And slowly, we're getting the attention of legislators and policymakers, and there is movement on that. There, There is an awareness of the importance 
importance of early childhood education. And slowly but surely, some funds are beginning to follow that awareness. That doesn't always happen, and the time delay can you know, be frustrating. But, you know, the more money you put into solving and remediating learning issues at at preschool K-1, the better off those students are going to be moving, you know, up through our system. And it's one of those things where paying a little bit of money in up front saves you money down Down the road. road. Because if those remediations and if the Uh, supports are delayed, then the challenges in kind of overcoming them become Mm -hmm. greater. Right. And so later down the line as they progress in grade. Absolutely. So it's smart money as well as the right thing to do. Right. And for those of you who might not know what the Collaborative for Educational Services is, Todd, why don't you tell us a bit about it? The Collaborative for Educational Services is an educational service agency. There are 24 of them in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, We are the largest geographically. We are the largest with revenues and the largest uh, staffing. And we're located right here in Northampton. Uh, At its heart, an educational service agency is a way for districts to kind of combine resources in one organization to support their their, their needs. A lot of times, so... CES, Collaborative for Educational Services, serves the 37 member districts here in Hampshire and Franklin County. That's our primary goal. Now, how do we do that? Most collaboratives across the state run special education programs, be it an autism program or a behavioral program, kind of outer district placements for those schools, for those students who need additional supports that they can't get in their regular traditional public school setting. Uh, We do have two programs, but for the large extent, we're a lot different in that we do a lot of professional development, do a lot of social justice and equity trainings. We have an early childhood uh, division. We have our our Healthy Hampshire division that does a lot of community wellness and outreach. So we take a very holistic look at public education to say, to impact public education, we need to do more than just focus on what happens in the classroom. We have to get uh, the students ready to learn, which often often involves supporting them within their communities and supporting families. So that mean you get called in by a principal or superintendent to come help with the situation happening at their schools and, and then you develop a plan with them? Or it could do you be. do it directly? Or do you do they just hire you and be like, look, we have this problem, bring in your experts instead it's, of training us? It's always a cooperative partnership when we provide support for school districts. A lot of times uh, superintendents or principals will reach out and say, we have this problem or we want to do this. We want to go in this direction. And we've been doing this since 1974, coming up on our 50th anniversary this year. And so we have a lot of capacity. We have a lot of resources. We have a lot of talented people that work for us, and and that's known. Educators know if they come to the collaborative, we could very well have something that we can immediately, you know, kind of roll out for them. And if not, tell us what you need. We'll try to build it for you. So our job is to really do whatever is necessary to support public schools and public education. Um, You mentioned the assistance that the Collaborative for Educational Services gives for special education. And I know that special education, it's putting a huge strain on school budgets lately, especially for these smaller districts. In what ways are you helping these small districts handle those? Typically, when it comes to special education, we do have one special education program, our HEC Academy, and it's an alternate day program, and it's here in Northampton. And then 
The rest of what we do for districts is really work with the educators in those districts to build their skills, to be uh, able to more effectively run a good meeting to discuss individual education plans for students, IEPs, or best practices for co-teaching between special education teachers and regular teachers in a classroom uh, so that special education students can be supported in an inclusive, inclusive environment right within the regular education programs. That takes training, and, and that takes practice, and it takes resources, uh, but that's some of what we do to help kind of support that is really through professional development for the teachers and paraprofessionals and administrators in the building. And that's so important, making sure that students who need IEPs can stay in the classroom with their peers. You don't want to be sent off to a separate school. It is critical, yes. Yeah. Tell me tell me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the responsibility for that falls on paraeducators, and they're being asked to do a lot now. Like, I think that it's a really amorphous role to be a paraeducator, and it's getting harder. Paraeducators are critical to supporting those special education students in the classroom, particularly um, not just in, you know, individualized programs, but also in the inclusive uh, regular environment. Student, you don't want that student to feel overly frustrated or like they can't make effective progress or be there with their peers. And sometimes just to have that adult to, you know, kind of give them a little little support, a little nudge in the right direction uh, means all the world and has a dramatic impact in their ability to access the curriculum and, and learn in that environment. I wanted to at least ask you about urban schools since we talked a little bit about rural schools what are the biggest challenges in urban schools specifically is dealing with right now besides the shorting uh, uh, sorry the shortage of staff that you mentioned earlier teachers and everything else but are classroom sizes growing in urban schools what issues do you see there it all comes back to the those staffing issues if we can't get qualified professionals into the to, to into those public school environments uh, it, it's going to have an impact on our ability to deliver effect. And so, you know, some of it's that. And then it's it's implementing change. Uh, mm. Change is hard. Change is necessary. It's absolutely critical at this juncture for public education to change so that it is more responsive to the needs of today's society rather than the society in 1980 or 1990. Okay. Uh, and so, but change is difficult. There's always resistance. There's always disagreement right. on what that change should look like. And I think, you know, kind of overcoming that is one of those challenges. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I have had this question for you and I've been holding it for a while. Do we... One of the meaty ones? Do we, as residents of Massachusetts, as citizens of this commonwealth, ask too much of our public schools and specifically of our teachers? The short answer is yes. Mm. You know, when I reflected this, about this conversation, you know, one of the things I was thinking of is we are often held up and compared against public education systems from other countries, such as Finland, such as Singapore, such as Canada. Canada. So what are they doing right? What is the major difference? What are they doing right? There's two components to it. One is if you look at those countries, they have de-emphasized standardized tests. Whereas in our country, the legislation and policies uh, that have driven and shaped public education for the last 30 years have focused incredibly hard on standardized testing and accountability. Well, if you look at the school, the, the educational systems 
globally, the ones that are held up as, as successful don't. They don't focus on that element with standardized testing. E even looking at an, or an educational system that did and is now moving away from it, like Singapore. Singapore used to be hyper-focused on testing. Not only testing, they would actually, you know, rank students more so than they we do just in high school with GPA. And now Singapore is moving away from that to a more collaborative approach to act to education, mm. recognizing that the competition driven by constant quantitative evaluation was inhibiting actual growth. So then I have to ask this follow-up, if that's if that's what you're telling me here. That's one aspect. Uh, well, that's one don't, aspect. Don't do you want to get second? One. Okay, what's the second one? Go ahead. The second is, in those countries, teachers and educators are revered. They're treated as professionals. They are, their expertise is valued. When you have a conversation with a teacher in those countries, those countries, it's like having a conversation with a doctor in the United States. What they say in the realm of their area of professional expertise is given great weight. We do not do enough of that here in the United States. Well, I mean, I could cite a statistic. I saw something like at least half a million teachers have left the profession since COVID. One of the reasons is burnout. They no longer want, want to do that. It no longer feels like the pay is commensurate with the amount of work they had to do. And, and that was, there was a large amount of uh, unhappiness pre-COVID with the situation and the dynamics. You added the COVID situation to all of that and caused many teachers to leave. I was just going to say, look at the, I don't know, the climate around like school committees, like parents and school committees and the fights and the micromanaging that happens. I feel like as a journalist, I've most of some of the most contentious meetings I've been to have been school committee meetings. Why is that? <laughs> because at its heart, education is about children and that elevates the emotions of all parties involved. And so that disagreements become personal, very personal, that ideologically driven differences are exacerbated because of that emotional element. You know, to kind of segue back a little bit, though, to why are teachers leaving? You know, teachers got into, this prof into their profession because they care about kids and they want to teach kids. <clears throat> they want to impart knowledge and see that light come on. They want to help a a child navigate life. I always say that, you know, as an educator, you teach life. It's just focused through whatever content you happen to be teaching, whether that's math, science, social studies. And so I think teachers are getting really tired and worn down. One, because they're constantly being questioned. Why'd my student, why'd my child get an A or a B instead of an A? You know, they live in fear of that email where they're going to be accused of something. And let me tell you, those emails come at five o'clock at night. If the, the five to eight is, a, is the, <laughs> the big uh, time when emails come in, typically from parents. And let me just say that the vast majority of parents are incredibly supportive of what happens in the schools. But the vocal minority place a lot of stress on teachers and administrators, principals and superintendents. Because quite frankly, you know, oftentimes good administrators are, are stepping in front and taking the hits so that their staff doesn't have to. That wears on you. It really does. I, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about uh, countries are going away from the standardized testing. Mm. So here's my big question. If somebody believed in standardized testing, would counter and maybe say to you, well, then how do we measure mm. 
what's the measurement, what's the criteria to measure if students are in fact learning? Because at least from what I've understood, at least from George W. Bush, No Child Left Behind, and Obama, I forgot the name of, of his program. Race to the Top. Race to the Top. That's right. Thank you, Todd. That's a terrible name. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but, but Again, he, it's a competition-driven co- model. Using metrics and a lot of the data and measurement, and they would argue, I would assume here, I'm not speaking for all people who believe in the standardized testing metric model, it is the only way to assess if real learning is happening in the classroom. What does Todd say to that? You know, I'll say it goes back even a little further. It goes back to really to 1983 and a Nation at Risk report that came out. And there was a really important line that came out in that report that said, the educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and as a people. Mediocrity. And then, but but Hmm. placed it as an existential threat Hmm. to the vitality of us as a nation. Now, it's really a double-edged sword. We want policymakers to pay attention to education so that we can get the appropriate resources. But unfortunately, in the past 30 or so years, they've been overly involved and way too lost in the weeds and micromanaging what happens in schools and not relying on educators to help determine what is necessary but you know, special interest groups have dramatic impacts on the legislative process and what, how the sausage get made and what comes out at the other end. And so I think that's really important. But your question is really a good one because educators are not against accountability. They're, they want to help shape what it looks like, just as every other profession does. Uh, take doctors, for example. Take lawyers, for example. There's pure elements to the accountability process for those professions. Teachers as a profession need to be treated as professionals as well. So how do we do it? Well, first of all, it should be a, there should be a community element so the community has input on what is important. We here in Massachusetts believe in local control for our, for our public schools, and I am very much in favor of local control because different communities are very different, and schools should be a reflection of the communities in which they reside. And so there needs to be local control with you know some state oversight and you know general parameters but there has to be an ability for communities to shape their schools at a local level um, so they could to, you know we could have some state requirements you know we need to assess this 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 you can do some focus groups some surveys to see how the community feels about wh- what's going on in their schools but then there is an opportunity and this is how we shift public education because what we assess and measure is what we do, and that becomes the focus. That becomes what's valued. So rote learning right now is what we're assessing primarily through standardized assessments, and so that's what we have to give, which is you know the ability to perform well on that standardized test. But if we can shift those assessments to common performance assessments where students have to accomplish a task. And those performance assessments can be something that are, you know, we use state models so that uh, the state uh, as a system says, these are what performance assessments we have to measure with some flexibility at the local level to engage student voice, to engage student vision and passion into how we are going to demonstrate that we met this standards. Mm. So the ability to do it is out there. The ability to, you know, judge progress on individual students and school systems 
can be accomplished. And by doing it in that manner and making that shift, what it will do is shift public education and shift the instructional practices mm. because we will have to meet that new form of accountability. And I'd say one of my frustrations with the public school system right now is just this really hyper-competitive, career-focused atmosphere. And I think that's, being, that's been really harmful to students, and I'm wondering um, how you feel about that and how we can fix that. You know, competitiveness is a necessary element of society. Uh, it's something we all have to get used to. Um, you know, there, it's, we, we've kind of gone through a continuum uh, when it comes to how we look at it within a public school setting. And it, it's, it's hard. A lot of what we do K-12 is driven by the requirements of higher ed. And so that makes, you know, parents want the best for their kids. That's a universal. And so it begin, they begin to get worried. Is my child going to get into the college that they want to? And then that begins to put pressure. It begins to put pressure on them, it puts pressure on the kids to kind of meet that hurdle. And how you and perform K through 12 is going to impact whether you have debt for the rest of your life too. It will. It, right. it, and, yes. and, and it all connects back to the STEM education. I mean, so much money, and this all flows from business interests and governments putting a lot of money in STEM because they feel like the future workforce will demand having more STEM employees. Oh, this is, this is going to be one of my rants. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking about that hyper-competitiveness. I think that that's a large part of it. It is you need to do exceedingly well in math because it's part of the language that you need to, in order to do well in the sciences. And if you're going to get into STEM, you need to prove yourself that you've excelled both in math and sciences, right? I mean, am I, am I you do, off the bat here? If you look at what businesses are saying they want in new employees, they want somebody who can collaborate. They want somebody who can think critically, who can work with a group who has those, doing the air quotes, soft skills to be part of a group. And yet they also will turn around and say oftentimes that you have to do, no, we can't get rid of NCAS. We have to do standardized testing. We have to increase rigor. So again, this is, comes back to professionalism and treating teachers and educators as professionals. Tell us what you need. You don't tell it, go into the doctor's office and say, I got the sniffles. That means I have this, this, and this. I want this. You need to give me that. You don't. You go in, you say, okay, this is the problem. This is, this is what I'm seeing. And they're seeing that they need, you know, new employees graduating high school or in college and coming to them with these skills. But they're trying to tell us how to do it. Right. So tell us what the problem is. Stop trying to tell us how to fix it because we're professionals and we can. Now, hold us accountable for the results. And I'm fine with that, but let's yeah. talk about how. But the, I guess to ask your question, because this happened while I was going through uh, public schools here in Massachusetts. In the mid-90s, there was a big push to bring the MCAS because they felt like the standards were declining. And specifically, if I remember correctly now, this goes back 15, 20 years, it was a problem with writing skills. Like that was one of their big focuses is people don't know how to write well. Mm. And that was, a, that was a big impetus. And, and I was the last class before the MCAS became a graduation requirement in 2003. MCAS doesn't Go fix ahead. writing skill. I mean, there's the short answer right there. Your point is also really well taken in that there wasn't enough accountability 
in public education, say, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. There needed to be some accountability. The problem is it went too far, Mm. and it went in a direction that is now counterproductive with the, you know, focus on standardized testing. I think I'm in favor, personally, Mm. of Mm. uh, the state standards. I think it provided a continuity and expectation. I think that has done a lot to level the playing field and to kind of standardize the overall topics that are taught in public schools. I think that was really beneficial. Again, is that common core? Is that what we know as common uh, core? Close to common it? Or is core is the federal element, okay. but we refined it at the state level. You know, that's another example of basically common core. They took a lot of what we had already done in Massachusetts and wrapped it into and that. wrapped it into the federal. And I, again, there's another example of going too far. And so we're, we're slowly have scaled scaled it back through refinements of our state standards. Well, touch on on this role with you, Todd, is that the role of charter schools and other non-traditional public schools in this mix, because it has grown quite a bit. And what I hear from public school educators is that a large amount of money that would be going to the public schools end up going to charter or non-public schools, and it's draining funds from public schools, and that's a large part of why teachers are leaving the profession and the support staff. It's funding mechanism that the state has is towards the charter schools. What do you got to tell us about that? So let me start by saying I was a, a, a vocal, uh, vocally opposed to the expanding the chat, raising the chap, cap on charter schools uh, proposition two that came through a number of years ago as a ballot initiative. I am incredibly opposed to the idea and this was really what was being pushed by the charter industry, that a charter school is inherently better than a public school. And that, I mean, that in and of itself was, you know, just against everything I believe. However, I do think there are a place uh, for char- charter schools in certain situations. You know, as in, you know, like an alternate dropout prevention uh, school to help those students who just have not made it in the public school setting, maybe they're 18, 19, maybe 16, 17, mm-hmm. uh, and to stop them from dropping out, get them to a setting where they can get specialized and personalized instruction in order to meet w- their needs and support them to get them over the hurdle so they can finish high school. I think there is there's an example of a charter school model that w- that would work and be beneficial to a student population. I can remember being a middle school principal and writing a recommendation and advocating for a, a student to go to Pioneer Valley Performing Arts Charter School. Uh, they've been around for a long time and they're focused on performing arts. And so for those students who are really focused on the performing arts and could go and benefit from, you know, a school that's centered around that, there was another example of something I thought was uh, was a useful vehicle to educate students. Uh, did I uh, read correctly that charter schools were a model for experimentation that would happen in schools that the public schools would eventually look at and say, oh, it worked at this charter school, let's try to incorporate it. Is that why charter schools began? Or is that just uh, That was some of the theory on. behind it in actuality yeah. that never really kind of manifested itself. Okay. Uh, and to some extent is because this adversarial relationship has evolved that inhibits of really effective communication, collaboration, and partnering. Mm. All right, we're here talking with Todd Gazda from the Collaborative for Educational Services, the executive director, and he's been talking to us about public education in the state of Massachusetts. 
Here's my concern of what's happening in public schools in America recently. We've seen a decline in reading scores by about six points. We've seen a decline in math scores by about 11 points. Those declines match what's been going on before COVID. So COVID, I feel like, has accelerated some of those declines, right? I just saw a report, this is all from NPR, that we've had decline in uh, history scores down to the lowest level since they started recording in 94. Civic scores have dropped as well. It seems like decline that we haven't seen in even 10 years. I mean, some of our scores look like they've erased whatever gains we had made in the last 10 or 20 years. So what is wrong with what's going on? Maybe these metrics don't measure the right things, but how can we improve education if we reach this point? I think one of the things we're seeing is a reflection of initiative overload. Uh, it's like, you know, the newest, shiniest thing, uh, all of a sudden it's getting thrown at schools. And so teachers are, are just getting bombarded uh, with initiative after initiative after initiative. And a lot of these are, you know, it takes years to effectively implement with fidelity an initiative. And so all of a sudden, you know, you start doing this for two years and then maybe you have a new change in administration who wants to take it in a different direction. And all of a sudden you're doing this and then doing that. And then the state's saying, well, you need to do this, this, and this. We're going to measure it. Um, but they don't provide the resources to effectively do it. And so I think we're what we're seeing is a recognition that, you know, there's something we need to do to change it, but there's no willingness to kind of listen and come together and collaboratively figure out what that solution should be. Everybody's just talking past each other. Mm. And, um, and we're so lucky because we have Todd Gaza sitting in the room here with us, and he has every answer. <laughs> he, he has the answer for us about how uh, we can fix education. You know, so. it, it's not – when I, I look at – I've been doing this now for – this is my 22nd year in public education. Uh, and I've been a teacher. I've been a middle and elementary school principal. I've been a superintendent. And now in my current role, I get to see kind of regionally and statewide how different things are working out. And I think some – some uh, through lines I've, I've seen on those districts who have really begun to make a difference. Uh, and the first is a, a, focal, a focus on the community-based social structure and the social supports in the community. If a student is coming into school scared, if they're coming into school hungry, if they're worried about where they're going to go to sleep tonight, it doesn't matter what you teach them in that classroom, they're not going to be able to access the curriculum. And so we need to stop thinking that the schools are going to fix everything about this student being able to learn when there are foundational elements that are not being met, when they, they, they aren't ready to learn. So that needs to be a component of this. We need to develop a, you know, a holistic view within a community of what supports students need. The second thing is climate and culture within the school is critical. If the teachers aren't enthusiastic, aren't happy, don't feel safe uh, to express opinions, then that gets reflected in their practice. Mm. And then the students don't feel safe, don't feel effectively able to express their opinions. Uh, it inhibits their ability to learn. Mm. Uh, and so climate and culture within the school comes with treating your staff with respect. And again, I'm going to go back to my, the point I've been hitting all morning, which is you have to teach. As a society, we need to begin teaching, treating teachers with respect because that will impact their ability to make 
schools an inviting place. And so I think that's the second thing. And it would also help if we paid teachers enough that they didn't have to go work their work second, second jobs. jobs or third jobs. That, that's helpful as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing is a focus on within the school setting, the social and the mental health elements that need to be supported through things like hiring licensed clinical social workers but for developing systemic positive behavioral supports so that we can turn challenges in interactions between students or with students with staff into learning opportunities rather than just dropping the hammer and suspending them. But that takes professional development and learning for a school community. And then the final thing is we need to, we need to start teaching students the way they learn rather than expecting them to learn the way we teach. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's an element where the world is a lot different now than when it was when I went to school back in the 70s and 80s. Back then, you know, if I wanted to learn about something, I went to the card catalog, pulled out the Encyclopedia Britannica, and did the best I could in kind of trying to find a book or something on it. Nowadays, students reach into their pocket, grab their phone, hit Google. And so this, this is a challenge in that they're providing, being provided with data, providing with information, but how accurate is it? So right. what skills are we teaching them? We don't have to right. feed them the content as much anymore. Right. Uh, we need to teach them how to analyze the, contract, the content. content, how to think critically, how to engage their passions, how to take their passions and then shape it into a hands-on co collaborative project right. that meets the state standards. Right. It's doable, but it yeah. takes professional development in order to create that relevant engaging learning experience for kids. Flexibility to do that and teachers forced to teach to a test and that are, I'm looking at like the city of Holyoke, which has been under receivership for like seven years now. I don't think they have the flexibility to, I, I don't know, teach to like what the community wants if they're trying to meet all these goals. There is no school district that has gone into receivership and come out. Really? Because the focus it gets even more on the waiting, measuring, accountability. It doesn't, you know, it, there's not enough focus on changing that instructional environment. Uh, or there will be a focus, and yet we're measuring this. And so the two aren't aligned. Hmm. If you were governor of Massachusetts and you were given a free reign, forget about Congress, uh, the state legislature and the Senate, uh, what changes would you make as governor specifically in education, to improve the educational outcomes. It, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is we're not measuring the right things, and then when we measure the things that we say we want, we're actually going in the opposite direction, so they're misaligned in some ways. So I get rid <clears throat> first right off the bat, and the governor can't do it. It has to be, a, it's a legislative priority. It's set through legislation. So, you know, I'd have to be king of Massachusetts, and I don't <laughs> see, see that happening. But let's, let's assume that as governor, I could, I could get the legislator behind it, legislature behind it. So first thing is remove uh, MCAS as an exit requirement for, for high school so that you don't have to pass the MCAS to graduate. We are one of eight states left that continues to have an exit exam uh, for our high school kids to graduate. The second is scale back the MCAS. I wouldn't eliminate it completely. Ed reform in Massachusetts in the early 1990s set assessment at fourth, eighth, and 10th grade. It gives you a logical check-in point on, you know, when students typically leave elementary school, when they leave middle school, and during their high school career to assess, 
is our teaching aligned uh, with our curriculum? Are there any gaps? I'm less worried about individual student performance as you know, cohorts of students in their performance, and what can we learn from that data to change our practices to make it better for students? Also scale back the number, amount, and length of those exams. Assessment is an important component of what we do as educators. But then change this focus from a accountability standards, you know, standardized testing driven to more engaged learning opportunities through things like performance assessments. There is legislative movement right now to um, end MCAS as a graduation requirement. Do you have any predictions or hopes as to how that's going to go? There's beginning to get more appetite at the legislative level. Uh, the fun, you know, we're, we're fighting lobbyists though who, uh, you know, firmly believe that this is the only way to go. You, and, the, you know, it's if we lose this, then we're going to be back to the wild, wild west of the 70s and 80s when there was no accountability. And that's not true. There's a group out there right now doing this work and has been doing it for about six or seven years now. It started as a consortium of seven or eight districts across the Commonwealth uh, looking at this. How do we assess performance without standardized testing through focus groups and developing accountability measures as well as high quality performance assessments so students are completing tasks that align to the standards and align to the curriculum. Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Educational Assessment was the new name of the group. It's also now morphed into the Education Commonwealth Project, and this is a partnership of higher ed, local school districts, and teachers to develop these accountability standards so that they can show, hey, listen, we're doing the work, and these are the outcomes, and, but we're giving it in you, to you in a manner that lets us reshape what happens in the classroom to meet the needs of the kids who are in front of us today. Yeah, because teachers and ed educators don't want to get rid of assessments and accountability. That's a really important tool when you talk about equity among school districts. Like, how do you know where kids aren't being served? I think the hard part in that question, Sarah, and sorry to, to add this to your question. I know Todd wanted to answer it, but is I think teachers would want different forms of assessment depending on maybe what topic they're teaching. Or teachers are going to think differently about what they should be assessed on maybe based on their strengths if especially if you're going to tie their salaries to the outcomes measured in some new metric or new model, right? Because that's what a lot of this reform has done, right? And I know that's a big topic for us to touch here at the end. Or yeah, Meripay is not, that, that's a rabbit Ameripay. hole that, honestly, it's but never go. worked. Meripay for educators has never worked. And it's led to... It's led to fraud. Led, led to fraud. <laughs> Sorry. Really, is, you know, it, it leads to teachers teaching in fear. And so that, that's, that's not a productive, you know, road to go down. It will take work. It will take professional development, but teachers aren't afraid to work. They just want to work in a manner that they know is beneficial to their kids. Mm -hmm. it, meaning, and it's always their kids. Right. Uh, you know, we, we as it, teachers, we become very. Uh, is there an attached. outside agent? I know this. This must exist. An outside agency that would measure the teachers inside schools and give them ratings, and maybe this area this teacher should focus on. And it, it, no. we have that. We have uh, that. You know, we have a very robust teacher evaluation system in here in Massachusetts that was redone about ten years ago. That provides substantive, substantive feedback through direct observations, through setting goals, through setting goals that are easily, uh, that are 
kind of quantifiable as well, so you yeah. can assess progress. But these are, and these are in conjunction with their building administrators. So that is already there. And so, you know, it, it's the ability to really work to shift what we say uh, we are, you know, holding schools accountable for. I mean, I ultimately, Sarah, I don't know how you feel, but this is like the goal of education should be to inspire students to love learning, you know, because if you don't have that, then it feels like, well, some students have called it like a prison or and other things. It feels like you're being forced into it and you end up killing that de- hunger and desire for an educational pursuit in life. There's an excellent example of that that's really concrete where a number of years ago there was a push to give students who were struggling in math double math double math classes. So you double them up with math. I mean, how brutal is that for a kid where I'm struggling with math, okay, I got through my 45 minutes, now I got another 45 minutes of math, so we're going to double down on that. What they found is that there was a study out there that shows they actually declined yeah. because they were getting, you know, and they're like, well, why did they decline? They're getting more of what they need. It's not that they're getting more of what they need. It's they're not getting it how they need it. Mm. Uh, if you develop something like that and you, ha- you have your traditional math class, but then you take it with some sort of extension or enrichment class where they can take those concepts they learned within the math class and then utilize them to solve a real-world world problem, mm. now you're talking at something that's going to engage the students, it's going to be exciting, it's going to be something they care about, because you're right, if they don't care about what's being put in front of it, they're not going to learn it. Right. Hearing your answer made me think of where I think a, a big push is going to be made in education, and that's artificial intelligence helping kids as an assistant. Not, not <laughs> replacing teachers, but to basically, if you want to individualize it, that's the system that exists today to figure out exactly what this individual child is missing. I mean, it, there's a you lot just, of problems with it, but that's where it's going. You just scared a lot of teachers who are listening right now. Well, yeah. no, not I know, replacement. But... No, no. I see it as, as you talking about the additional support. It is artificial intelligence ability to understand understand, I put that in quotes, what is happening with the student, why they're not picking it up, and they'll, it will try to, the student, see what they're missing. What, are we trying to put Todd out of the job? Uh, no. And I don't think it will. <laughs> I don't think and it I, will. You know, I, I, you always look, you can't, you can't combat change. You can't just say, no, we're going to ban, uh, you know, chat GPT in our schools. Mm-hmm. That's just not going to work. But how do we adapt what we're doing, given this new tool? Right. Uh, and that's what it is. It's simply a tool. Right. And we can use that to support, right. but we're going to have to break through that anxiety to change, right. uh, the anxiety of something new, uh, so that and give professional development so that we can teach our teachers how to incorporate it into right. what they do. In and it's classroom. more of an assistant to the teacher more than replacing the teacher, at least at this stage that I see. But yes. So okay, I feel like you answered everything. No, I covered my note. You know, it's funny. My my dissertation, uh, my doctoral dissertation was, I, I started out in a... At UMass? Like, what do I want? Uh, University of Hartford. Hartford, okay. And I said, what do I want to explore? And I was, I was a middle school principal, and I'm thinking, you know, I want to... Uh, I want to do something about how to utilize technology effectively in the classroom. And so I was beginning to, you know, think about things in that area. And then I got angry. <laughs> and I got angry <laughs> I at the state legend. I do. You know, it really kind of spurs some uh, creative thinking. But I got sick of all of the mandates coming down from the state telling us what we needed to do in schools and not providing resources. And they weren't what I knew we needed to do to change teaching and learning in, our, in, our, in my building. And so I said, that's what I want to study. And so my doctoral dissertation was uh, a study on the disconnect 
between the development of educational policy at the state and federal level and its implementation in uh, local schools. Uh, so I surveyed every superintendent and principal in the state of Massachusetts uh, utilizing a framework uh, that said, okay, so where is that disconnect? Where, where does it fall apart? Where what they say we need to do doesn't match what you know we need to do in our buildings. And so I think that disconnect is still here, it's still alive, and it is still driving a lot of the problems well, in public, public well, that education. Makes me think, that makes me think of uh, laptops in classrooms. You know, schools are now debating if they should have cell phones. I mean, there's a lot of distractions. As much as I praised AI as, as an assistant to teaching and educational process, it's a huge distraction to young people, and it's designed and developed to be that distraction. So have you seen any results in the corporation, let's say, of laptops or, or that sort of new technology in the classroom as helping students learn? Oh, dramatic. I mean, it yeah. changes. It opens a window to the world right into that classroom, which, you know, can be scary because, you know, there's that access to all the information. And so, you know, it forces us to help uh, students be able to identify bias, uh, to identify what is true. You know, this idea that we don't what is truth? Uh, I mean, that is such an existential question that is dramatically impacting, quite frankly, our country, but also the educational environment in our school. And so I think, but they really, I think educational technology has been a game changer for public education. And I think we could utilize it even more effectively given the opportunity. But it isn't as simple as just giving people laptops. No, you can't right? just, you get, it, no. everything comes through professional development for teachers and educators on how do we use this? Mm. Because you can't, you can't just hand them a device. I, I could hand you a virtual reality goggles and say, here you go. Mm. And there's so many questions I could have you on for another hour, but um, what's the number one metric measuring a student's success later in life? Is it that they went to an affluent rich school, that their parents had lots of books, that their parents have PhDs? Like what's the, the data that you ever seen on a student's success? Well, you know, it's one of those things, uh, you know, one of the biggest problem with MCAST is, you know, when you rank school systems uh, across the Commonwealth by MCAST scores, you might as well just rank them by, Wealth, you know, income. average income, average because income, it's, yeah. it falls out almost exactly the same. And so, honestly, the most important thing for student success later in life is to have a caring adult in their life. Mm. That is what matters to kids. Most of the time that caring adult is a parent. Sometimes uh, it can be somebody else. It can be a teacher. It can be a paraprofessional. It can be a principal. It can be a custodian, a mm. cafeteria worker, a bus driver. It's somebody that they can go to that they know cares about them. Uh, that's what gives students a sense of belonging. We can create that in our public school settings. It's just, oftentimes a lot of, it's all the attacks now are really kind of ripping that dynamic apart and yeah. creating an adversarial relationship that right. negatively impacts that. Well, I just wanted to share as we wrap up here and it's at the end, one of the most memorable projects that I had in my educational experience was going back to the third grade. And there was a teacher who had us write to a professor at UMass, anything we wanted, and it was a bunch of questions on a topic, and I asked about moths. I don't know why I chose that, <laughs> but I, I knew nothing about it, and I wanted to ask a professor. And the amazing part, why it has stuck me for more than 30 years now, 
is I wrote out a letter, asked a bunch of questions and got a response and I remembered it and then it got published in a book. And I got to say, like when a teacher is willing to go that far to put me to put a second or third graders letter in the hands of a professor who would then respond and answer that and have that all published together, not just my questions, but put that together in a book and the sort of this, you know, special project that yeah. took some creative thought in it. It an makes effort. a world of different in effort. It does. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. It takes that. The way to get good teachers and that creativity is, like you're saying, step back with these band-aids and restrictions, but you also got to pay teachers that time, the development, the teacher development to come up with these creative projects because it's not easy to do. And it sometimes takes many years of training in the classroom before you start thinking like, okay, maybe I need to rethink what I've known. You know, because we, we could have had a topic about, you know, so many things about history and the politics of that going yeah. on. You know, you talked about book bannings in schools and, you know, there's gun violence going on. I mean, educate what's happening in education so he feels like it's the world is falling on it. Um, but I don't know if you want to add any last thoughts, Sarah or Todd. <laughs> I don't know. I've talked a lot today. It's it's been absolutely enjoyable. I just feel like tax breaks for teachers to buy whiteboard markers is not the answer. No, (laughs) I 100% agree. (laughs) Wait, the teachers have to buy the chocolate? Oh, yeah. I mean, the the government acknowledges that teachers need to use their own money to buy supplies for their classroom. So they go, oh, we'll give you tax breaks on it. For whiteboards? I think it's $250. You can get up to $250 tax break on your federal income taxes. Yeah, if you need to buy pencils or like little figurines to do Instead of the central office buying that? Yeah. Yeah. Because they they don't have any money left? It depends. There are always situations where, you know, supplies are in demand. Okay. Yeah. I met met someone from Jackson, Mississippi recently, and she told me that they were encouraged to bring their own toilet paper to schools. (laughs) We don't realize how lucky we are in Massachusetts sometimes. (laughs) No, really, yeah. You know, our educational system is a product of our federal system, and state control is a quintessential element of that. And... Uh, that creates, uh, you know, disparities across the, the country in the United yeah. States. Mississippi yeah. and certain states with the... Uh, there are por- school districts in Los Angeles that have, like, a graduation rate in the teens. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It, but they've Beverly been working Hills. really hard, though, to yeah. try and, you know, increase and improve that. Springfield has done an amazing job of yeah. increasing their graduation rates in recent years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're incredibly lucky here in Massachusetts, for we sure. Are. Yeah. Compared to got other people states. Like, and, st- and still have a ton of work to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So... Okay. Well, that was Todd Gazda, the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services here with us on Panorama. And uh, you've been listening to me, Dan Torres, here with Sarah Robertson. And until next week. <laughs>